Section 67 of The United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Natter. The World's Story, Volume 12, The United States. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 67. Everyday Life in the Early Colonies. By George Carey Eggleston. Up to the end of the seventeenth century, life and manners in all the colonies were exceedingly simple. Even the families of those who were best to do lived in a fashion far ruder and simpler than that which prevails in our time in the remotest farming districts. They had horses and cattle now, with many a flock of sheep, but as they had no roads much better than woodland trails, the settlements still clung closely to the coasts and the watercourses which furnished convenient highways. Because of the lack of land highways, and especially of bridges across streams, there were scarcely any vehicles of any kind in use in the colonies until nearly the end of that century. When a few light carriages did at last come into use, they had to be taken to pieces every time a stream was to be crossed. The separate parts were then packed into the rowboats that carried the passengers, while the horses swam at the side or behind the boats. The problem of the colonists still was to produce grain enough and meat enough to live upon, and so farming was the chief industry of all the colonies, except that in New England fishing, shipbuilding, and commerce overseas supplemented it. The farming implements of that time were of the very rudest character, and most of them were imported at high cost from Europe. The firearms of the colonists were rude and clumsy. They were such as we should now deem unfit for use, either in attack or defense. Most of the guns in use were matchlocks, that is to say, they were guns which could be shot off only by touching a coal of fire to the powder in what was called the pan of the gun such a gun could be fired only once in a minute or two and seldom so often if the soldier's fuse happened to burn out for in that case he must run to the nearest fire and relight it before he could again discharge his matchlock moreover the gun itself instead of being brought to the shoulder as guns are nowadays was rested in some crotchet sticks and was fired with far greater slowness and difficulty than even large cannon are to-day after a while a new kind of gun came into use which was distinctly superior to the matchlock this was a gun in which there was a spring-lock armed with a flint so placed that when the trigger was pulled the flint scraped down over a piece of roughened steel created a shower of sparks and ignited the powder in the gun these flintlock guns continued in use until well into the nineteenth century the american revolution and the war of eighteen twelve were fought with flintlocks but even such weapons as these were costly and very scarce among the colonists a good deal of their fighting was therefore done with pikes and half-pikes two forms of spears that were effective only at close quarters such weapons were the less effective in fighting indians for the reason that the indians rarely allowed themselves to be brought into close quarters even in our own day it is the habit of the indians to fight from a distance to retreat firing when pressed and never for one moment to come into hand-to-hand -hand conflict if it is possible to avoid it of course the advantage of the colonists in having firearms while the indians had only bows arrows spears tomahawks and battle-axes was soon lost to them 
laws were made forbidding the sale of firearms to the indians but everywhere in the world the greed of gain has always overridden the most wholesome and necessary laws wherever profit might result from their violation even at a time when the very life of the colonists hung in the balance of indian warfare there were base traders who gladly made money by selling to the indians the weapons they needed for the slaughter of the whites men women and children among the indians it was the custom to regard the tribe rather than the individual as the unit of society if any man of one tribe injured any man of any other tribe the injured man's tribe felt that it had a right to hold that other tribe responsible for the wrong the indians applied this rule in their dealings with white men if a white man cheated an indian or killed an indian or wronged him in any way the indian idea was not to hunt out the offender and punish him but to make the wrong a cause for war between the tribe to which the injured indian belonged and all the white men in the region round about it is this peculiarity of the indian point of view which chiefly accounts for the frequency of indian wars in those earlier times and for their merciless savagery under such conditions it was necessary for the englishmen in america to stand always upon their defence they carried their guns with them always and they fortified their settlements with palisades and in other ways among these other methods of defence was the building of what were called blockhouses these were made of hewn logs laid closely together and built up in such fashion that the upper story projected beyond the plumb line of the lower by a foot or two this prevented scaling by those who might assault the blockhouse in times of trouble all the settlers gathered in these blockhouses and used them as fortifications from which to fight off the indian attacks by firing from slits in the walls if the indians had been determined war-makers of course no blockhouse could long have stood their assault they might have forced their way up to it and built fires around its base thus driving its occupants out of it into the open where they might be slaughtered without difficulty but at no time in american history have the indians shown themselves to be determined fighters their method of warfare has always been to make a dash if the dash were successful they slaughtered their victims if it were unsuccessful they retired and gave up the fight the colonists early learned this by experience and they arranged their defensive works in full recognition of the indian habit of mind one other great difficulty that the early colonists encountered was their total lack of knowledge concerning the climate and soil of the regions in which they had settled after they had quit hunting for gold and for a northwest passage through the continent they at last set themselves to farming they did so however with a degree of ignorance which in many cases proved disastrous they did not know what crops could be successfully cultivated in this country and so they tried practically everything of which they had ever heard but chiefly such crops as grow only in warm climates in new england they could grow corn potatoes turnips pumpkins squashes beans peas and the like but instead of that they tried the cultivation of silk wine mother olives tea coffee cacao the bean from which chocolate and cocoa are prepared and many other things that can be grown only in tropical or low subtropical regions these attempts of course resulted in failures and sometimes even in the impoverishment of those who made them it was only little by little that such mistakes were corrected 
and that the colonists learned what crops they could grow with profit upon such lands and in such climates as they had little by little at the same time they learned how to live in their new surroundings the new englanders learned the use of sleds in winter and of snowshoes both they and the virginians learned how to make the abundant fish and game a profitable food supply in the meanwhile all the colonists learned much that aided them to live comfortably in the regions in which they had settled one important thing that they had learned by the middle of the century was how to build houses somewhat though not very well suited to the conditions in which they were living at first they had put up bush shelters or dug holes in the ground a little later they had built bark wigwams which did not and could not keep out the cold of winter a little later still they learned how to build log cabins which they could chink and daub with mud so as to make them fairly comfortable habitations there were few sawmills in america in those days boards and planks were therefore exceedingly scarce and costly yet with growing prosperity the colonists desired something better than logs with which to build their houses they had acquired expertness in hewing out planks with a broad axe and still more in riving out shingles and clapboards with a frow many of their houses therefore were built of these rough-hewn planks and still more of them some of which are standing even unto this day were covered with shingles about the middle of the century they began to saw out boards and planks with what were known as whipsaws in order to do this they placed a log upon two high trestles and with one man standing on top and one below they sought out such lumber as they needed it was a slow and costly method of manufacture but it was the best and cheapest then known there was no such thing as a stove in existence at that time and of course there was no such thing as a furnace or a steam radiator with which to warm houses the use of coal as fuel had not yet begun the only means of domestic heating and even of cooking was the great cavernous fireplace into which large backlogs were rolled and fires built upon it and in front of them these fireplaces were often so large as to admit of settles being placed within them at the sides of the fire for the sake of greater warmth and comfort in each of them there was hung a crane this was a bar sometimes of green wood and sometimes of iron hung upon hinges which could be swung outward and inward at pleasure pots and kettles were hung upon it over the fire by hooks of varying lengths while skillets ovens and the like were set upon the vast hearths where live coals were shoveled under them and upon their lids for purposes of baking frying pans were used simply by setting them upon hot coals in front of the fire coffee-pots and the like were set upon little three-legged iron rings called trivets under which coals were placed in some houses the fireplaces were built without jams there were simply a wall with a broad hearth in front over which was a hood learning to the chimney above fire was built upon the hearth and settles surrounded it the fire was a fierce one for wood was plentiful but it did not warm the room except for a few feet in front of it there were two reasons for this first of all the houses were so ill-built as to let the wintry blasts into them freely in the second place the chimneys themselves had upward openings so vast that the cold air came down as fast as the hot air rose 
as a consequence of these conditions water froze even near the fire and we have records showing that distinguished new england divines sometimes had to suspend the writing of their sermons because the ink froze in their pens even when they sat within the fireplace as another consequence all the beds of that time were closely and unwholesomely curtained to keep out draughts as was the case in england also and every bed was warmed before it was used by passing a warming-pan filled with hot coals between the sheets this necessity endured in england till the middle of the nineteenth century as we learn from dickens's account of the trial of bardell versus pickwick roasting was done in two ways sometimes the fowl or the pig or cut of meat to be roasted was thrust through with an iron rod called a spit and arranged that it could be turned by a crank a reflector was placed behind it on the side opposite the fire so as to keep all of the heat within another a simpler and a more generally employed way of roasting was by hanging the meats to strings which depended from the ceiling under each roast a dripping pan was placed and it was usually the task of the boys and girls of the household to twist the strings so that the roasts should continually revolve the boys and girls were also required to baste the meats as they cooked with the juices that fell from them into the dripping pans many houses of that time in new england consisted only of a kitchen which served also as a living-room with some sleeping-rooms above it and in practically all the houses the large kitchen was the family room for all purposes in virginia the kitchen was always in a detached building and was occupied by negro servants lack of spaciousness in the rude dwellings of that time led to the invention of devices for making the most of such room as was available the beds for grown people were raised on long legs high above the floor and under each there was a little trundle bed on wheels which could be drawn out at night for the use of the children there were also beds that folded up against the wall when not in use for light the best of all appliances in use at that time was the ordinary tallow candle of domestic manufacture in virginia and in the region south of it torches were often used made of fat pine sticks which were set up in iron frames or sconces in new amsterdam later new york many of the chimneys were built of sticks and mud and the result was that many fires occurred until at last this source of danger was removed by an ordinance forbidding the use of wood in the construction of chimneys another precaution against fire in the towns was the employment of chimney sweeps without their services which were compelled by law in new york there was always danger of a conflagration resulting from the ignition of the soot in chimneys in new england and virginia this danger was often averted by another and simpler device when the roofs were deeply covered with snow or when a drenching rain was falling great sheaves of straw were thrust up the chimney and set on fire thus the accumulated soot in the flues was safely burned away but in new york and in charleston south carolina chimneys were swept at regular intervals by those who made a business of the matter in charleston even up to the time of the civil war of eighteen sixty one to eighteen sixty five the little negro chimney sweep with his brooms and bags was seen and his musical cry was heard in all the streets as there were no such things as friction matches in those days or for two centuries later 
the keeping of seed fire by covering the coals with ashes was an important concern and when by any accident the seed fire was lost colonial boys were sent to the nearest neighbor's house often many miles distant to borrow a brand with which to rekindle the hearth there were very few blankets such as we now use in those days quilts stuffed with moss tow wool or whatever else might be available were generally used instead everybody slept upon feather beds and the dutch in new netherlands also used lighter feather beds for a covering precisely as many french and german people do to this day in all the colonies there was a certain kindly neighborliness which in many ways ameliorated and improved the conditions of life if there was illness in any house the neighbors volunteered to sit up with the ill person if there was a death the neighbors came in not only to sit up with the corpse but to provide a coffin and to take off the shoulders of the stricken family the work of arranging for the funeral kindly women went into the house and took charge of all the housekeeping affairs kindly men looked after the cattle and horses and did the wood chopping and whatever else there was to be done in other and less distressing affairs of life a like spirit of neighborly kindness lent cheer to existence if a man was building a house or a barn he got the timbers ready and then his neighbors came to help him in the rising of the framework if he had cut the timber from a piece of ground that he wished to cultivate his neighbors all came to help him burn the brush and the logs if a woman had painfully sewed scraps of cloth together to make a quilt all the women of the neighborhood came joyously to her to help in the quilting when the farmer had gathered in his corn he gave a husking bee and all his neighbors worked by torchlight at the corn pile until the last ear was husked all these neighborly corporations were made the occasions of social frolics when night came after the women had finished the quilting the boss came also there was a supper and a dance kissing games were played and the jollity was unembarrassed by any foolish conventionality when the time of the corn husking came the women as well as the men took part and whenever a red ear was found the finder man or woman was entitled to a kiss from the nearest one of the opposite sex the corn pile was carefully divided into two equal parts there was a choosing up between two chiefs so that the number of huskers on the two sides should be equal then there was a race to see which side should first finish the husking of its share of the corn the struggle was often exciting and always interesting after it was over there was a supper and after that a dance there were apt to be plentiful potations of hard cider or something stronger as an accompaniment to these frolics in these and a score of other ways there was neighborly cooperation which at once eased the work of the colonists and gave to them the advantage of an enjoyable social intercourse End of section 67. This recording is in the public domain.